MSW Media. This week, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn had a sentencing hearing in front of a federal judge. During the hearing, the judge expressed concern about efforts by Flynn's attorneys to minimize his unlawful conduct. Before postponing the sentencing, the judge also suggested that Flynn may have committed treason. Then we learned that acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker decided not to recuse himself, even though DOJ ethics staff told him he should recuse to avoid an appearance that he could not be fair. We also learned that Attorney General nominee William Barr wrote a 19-page single-spaced memo criticizing the Mueller obstruction investigation, which he sent to the White House and to Justice Department leaders. What does this mean for the Mueller investigation? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, this week we're covering multiple topics, partly because we listened uh, to the feedback from all of our listeners. Yep. Uh, I, I posted on Twitter. We got, I think, over 78, I think it was like 78 or 79 comments. It was great. Yeah, it was great. See, loved it. So uh, I I changed uh, the intro just for this week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did. I loved how they were spelling it on topic. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I don't think of myself again as having a Chicago accent, but as a native Chicagoan, uh, I'm sure I do. On topic. Yeah. Um, but we also this week are, are are covering, I think, a few different issues in one episode, which we haven't done before. Four. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, the uh, General Flynn hearing. We're also going to be talking about the law of treason very briefly, because a number of you asked us about that. Then we're also going to be talking um, about uh, the, uh, the recusal of Matthew Whitaker, the, the decision not to recuse, as well as uh, this uh, bizarre memo that was sent by uh, Mr. Barr, the uh, nominee for attorney general. So a lot to cover. And I will tell you, this is me picking and choosing the news of the week. Uh, I have been trying to do two or three of these a week, which is hard to do with all of our, our both of our other jobs. Sure. With all the news, how do you picking and choosing gets harder and harder? It is not yeah. easy to do. So we're trying to keep up and pack as much into this episode and uh, in, and partly because of your comments, you know, Patty's going to be, I think, asking more questions even this time. Well, and to be clear, a lot of times, our, you know, our listeners ask questions that I want to ask as well. So it works out very well. So it's, a, it's sort of a, a combination. So be assured that uh, these are these also reflect my curiosities. Yeah. And I, another thing I will say is if you do have more feedback uh, please tweet with the hashtag on topic and Patty and I will, uh, you know, take a look at any of your other suggestions. So let's talk to uh, Patty about this uh, sentencing hearing. It turned out not to be a sentencing uh, for Michael Flynn. And I think the, the first thing that is worth talking about is, you know, this, this sentencing hearing did not go how anybody expected because going into the sentencing hearing, you had the government 
Uh, the prosecutors recommending zero months in prison. In other words, no prison time. Then you had Michael Flynn's uh, attorneys obviously asking for the same thing. So, you know, that's something you'd think, OK, well, everyone, everyone's going to go there. The judge is going to give him a, a sentence of no, no time in prison and we'll go home. But one of the uh, major things I think that that and if, if not the reason that that hearing did not go as expected is that Flynn's lawyers did something that I don't think uh, almost any lawyer would have done in that situation, which is they tried to minimize his conduct. And they essentially tried to give an impression that Flynn had been tricked into lying to the FBI. Now, if you read it carefully, and by the way, uh, for to, so listeners understand, Flynn has very good, very expensive, uh, high t- top-notch lawyers, and they were they did a good job with the with what they were trying to do, which was to not say that there was misconduct because they couldn't. There was nothing that was inappropriate. There's nothing unlawful. In fact, uh, the way Mr. Flynn was treated was basically the same way that. When, when, that they that uh, people were interviewed when I was a prosecutor back during the Bush and the Ob- Obama administrations, and it's the way people interviewed now. When I have clients who are being interviewed by FBI agents during the Trump administration, but they gave this impression that he got fooled in some way or he wasn't treated right. Shouldn't they just have been there taking the win? Isn't no jail time for your client a, a win in this situation? Exactly right. So when you are winning. Uh, your job is to say as little as possible yeah. and let and just take that win. So when I was a young lawyer, uh, one of the lessons a very senior lawyer told me was when you win from a judge, the, your job is to get out of the courtroom before the judge changes his mind or her mind. So we just would book it out of there uh, as soon as we got our win. Don't ask any questions. Don't don't clarify anything. Just get out of there. Don't make any faces. Don't, uh, nothing. Yeah. I mean, that, that happens all, all, you know, that happens all the time. So in that situation, I would say 99 out of 100 criminal defense attorneys would have said as little as possible outside of, you know, just very safe statements. I mean, I think most criminal defense attorneys representing someone like Flynn in that situation would have said, you know, he's really sorry, he did something wrong, um, but but he's really come around and he's doing everything he can to help the government and the prosecutors because he believes so much in justice and, you know, he just made this, this very bad mistake, uh, you know, at one point in his life, but he's come around. They went the other way. Assume they, responsibility is what everyone wants. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, it. and and I and I during the, this hearing, I was tweeting about it, and one of the comments that I think drew a big reaction from people is, I don't understand why it's still a mystery to me why they did it, and the best explanation I heard from other people was that you know Flynn has got this defense fund that's funded through this effort that if you you know I follow a, a lot of people on the right. Uh, people who are, I would say, Trump's allies, because I want to understand what everybody's point of view is. And I follow Michael Flynn's son and I follow Michael Flynn's brother. Um, And they both say all these things all the time, kind of suggesting that they believe that General Flynn was innocent, that he was hoodwinked, that that, that his sentence is going to get reversed. And they've been raising money. It's really fraudulent in a way, raising money under a false suggestion that Flynn was going to get off in some way. And it, it seems to me that, that the judge may have been aware of some of this or, and that perhaps um, the lawyers reflecting that um, may have been because they were getting money from this legal defense fund and they needed to at least throw a bone to the crowd that thought that Flynn had been hoodwinked in some way. But it was not in their client's best interest. And so you had, I think, at the hearing, the judge very disturbed 
about this and asking what I would term very pointed questions of General Flynn and of his attorneys. You know, do you contend that he, you know, there's any misconduct? Are you contending that, you know, he didn't, that he, you know, didn't know that it was wrong to lie to the FBI? Are you contending this and then the other thing? Putting them on the spot um, and saying, look, are you contending this? Because if if they did, the judge was suggesting that he didn't think this was consistent with acceptance of responsibility. And that term is not just some term that, uh, you know, it, it, that we're talking about on a podcast. It is an important concept in criminal law and a big part of sentencing. If a defendant does not accept responsibility, they don't get the same level of credit for their cooperation and for uh, for and uh, under the federal sentencing guidelines. So um, the judge was essentially. I wouldn't say threatening is the wrong word, but essentially what he was doing is saying, I am holding acceptance over your head, and I'm not going to find that you accept responsibility if you are going to contest uh, act, you know, uh, 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 questioning that was lawful. And just to be clear, you know, the judge asked for the, the FBI report, the underlying report, which was right. released, and the, the report suggested very consistent lies told by Flynn where the agents were trying to give him opportunities not to lie. and saying, what about this? What about that? And he kind of repeatedly did it. How good was his information for the FBI that they recommended zero jail time? You know, I will tell you a lot of, uh, I think, a popular view amongst our listeners and folks who are reading uh, my uh, comments on Twitter is that, oh, Michael Flynn must have given up everything, uh, you know, giving up uh, all these big people to get this deal. I'm not so sure about that. And some people disagree. I'll note join Joyce Vance, who we've had on a couple of times, and I respect very much disagrees with me on this. But I think that he got a really great deal. His lawyers negotiated him a really great deal. And part of the reason he got that deal is because he was the first one in the door. And so, you know, when you look at the cooperation that he gave, there's a, there's redacted portions and we don't know what's on the other side of that. But it didn't, you know, what from what we could see, it didn't look like somebody who was, um, you know, giving something so amazing um, that on its face, you would think he would get quite a quite a good deal. Because as the prosecutor noted during the sentencing hearing, they could have charged, Mueller's team could have charged him with other crimes. You know, one, one I think, distinction that's important to make there is, and, and we talked about this um, during, our, um, uh, during a prior episode, is that Mueller, unlike, let's say, the, the Southern District of New York, you know, when Mimi and I were discussing this uh, in a recent episode, a couple episodes ago, you know, they, their job is just to get at the truth of a very limited set of potential problems. They're not general purpose prosecutors investigating all sorts of things. And so, you know, they I think they may have been more aggressive in giving a deal than, you know, my former office in Chicago or Mimi's former office in New York might have been. So what do you think is going to happen? Do you think the judge might come back and be like, you know what, after consideration, I'm going to give you some jail time? Or do you think she's that he's just going to demand uh, some sort of, uh, you know, plea of guilt and saying I shouldn't have done this and taking responsibility for everything? So that's a great question. So certainly if the sentencing had gone forward uh, this week, there's no question in my mind that Flynn would have gotten prison time. And the judge would have, um, you know, was signaling that very much so and was really going out of his way, I think, to signal that to the defense team. And that's because just so uh, it's clear, 
all in in pretty much every circumstance that I can think of, and I and I'm familiar with hundreds and hundreds of criminal cases. These when there's a cooperator, the cooperator is sentenced at the end of their cooperation. It's always delayed. That's a standard provision of any plea agreement. Here, Flynn is doing ongoing cooperation with Mueller, and and Flynn wanted the sentencing to be earlier before his cooperation was done. Usually, that that is something a prosecutor won't allow because, the, first of all, their leverage over the cooperator is down, but also... Uh, the cooperator wants the maximum benefit of all their cooperation. And the, what the judge was signaling was, uh, you don't want, you know, defense attorneys, you don't want, um, uh, you don't want to have your client go forward with sentencing today. You want him to get the full value of his cooperation because I'm going to give him prison. I mean, he didn't say this, but essentially I'm going to give him prison time if he's sentenced today. And then I'm going to have to deal with litigation in the future that claims you weren't an effective counsel because you were you 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 should have known that this could was a possibility and you didn't allow him to get the full credit of his cooperation. And so I will say I, I one thing that I have not written about um, if I had more time this week, maybe I would have. There was a there was some commentary from the heads of lawfare, um, uh, Ben Witties and uh, uh, Kajana. And I don't know how to say her last name off the top of my head. They wrote. Um, criticizing um, Judge Sullivan, who, by the way, is a, has a very stellar reputation, I would say, as a judge and a, a person who's come down against people on both sides of the aisle mm -hmm. and come down against the Justice Department very famously in a, a, ta a, state, a case called the Tad Stevens case that was a famous case of prosecutorial misconduct. But they criticized Judge Sullivan, saying that, you know, he made some mistakes in this process, and I want to talk about one of those mistakes in a moment. And he made some misstatements of what Flynn did. He talked about Flynn, um, you know, acting as a foreign agent when he was in the White House. They, he also suggested that Flynn committed treason. And as we'll talk about in a minute, you know, that that was not accurate. But they also said that it was wrong for him to have, in their mind, sort of bully Flynn into doing something he didn't want to do. And there, that's that's that. Part. I agree with them 100 percent, by the way that judges should be accurate, particularly at a sentencing hearing. So there's no question that at a sentencing hearing, it's very important that the judge not have any, not state any inaccurate information because the judge is putting forth the information that he or she is relying on to sentence someone. And the Court of Appeals is going to look very carefully at that information. And if and if, they're, if the judge is relying on something inaccurate, that sentence could be reversed and they'd have to do it all over again. Uh -huh. And we want, of course, defendants to be sentenced fairly based on accurate information. No question. I will say, as somebody who's practiced law, I think unlike the editors of Lawfare, that federal judges make errors all the time because they're human beings. And I'd say it's fairly common uh, for judges to say things that aren't necessarily quite right when they're speaking off the cuff. And so there was a lot of our listeners were mad at this Judge Ellis uh, from Virginia uh -huh. during the Manafort trial and some of the intemperate comments and inaccurate comments that he made. Uh, this is sort of on the other side, a judge kind of speaking uh, off the cuff, making some comments that maybe our listeners like more, but sure. ultimately were not accurate either. So in neither case is correct. Uh, it's not the right thing for a judge to do. And I would say that Judge Sullivan, given that this was a high profile case, probably should have been more prepared on some of those points. Although I will say, I didn't know anything about the law of treason until I had to look it up. But uh, the judge also didn't know that the defense attorneys were going to come at, at him with this, you know, 
my our client was bamboozled. Correct. I think when when that happened, the judge correctly asked for the FBI report and did some research there and was yeah. ready to ask some very carefully worded questions. I think what where he got in trouble was when he was freelancing about treason. I don't think he had, you know, if right. he had studied the law of treason, which I did just because many of you had, <laughs> on Twitter a year, years ago, a year ago, or started asking me all these questions about treason, um, he would have realized that, that, that there's no way that General Flynn could have committed treason. Um, but, but, and, 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 you know, he had, I think he got the facts wrong on, on another issue, uh-huh. but, but one, but one point I want to take an issue with the uh, lawfare editors on is, the judge absolutely 100% did the right thing by advising Flynn not to go forward with the sentencing on that date. He was doing Flynn and his attorneys a favor. They had made a significant error. The attorneys had made an error in how they had positioned things. For this gives the attorneys, first of all, and, and Flynn a time to regroup mm-hmm. and position themselves better for the judge. I expect more contrition from Mr. Flynn the next time around, General Flynn the next time around. I haven't seen uh, a peep from his son uh, since that hearing, as far as I could see on Twitter. You know, a lot of that language it may not come up, uh, this, this sort of language of minimizing his, his criminal conduct. And, and more importantly, you know, he will get more credit for his cooperation, which is what he deserves, because if he's going to be cooperating, he deserves to have all of that considered. And he's out on bond. So there's no he's not in prison. So there's no need to conduct the sentencing a little earlier rather than later. The judge was trying to avoid a situation where in the future, if General Flynn got a sentence he didn't like, he would be pointing the fingers at his, as it, at, his, at his attorneys for doing that or at the judge, for that matter. Right. So I think as a as a practical matter, if I was General Flynn's attorney, I would be thankful, ironically, that the judge telegraphed this to me so carefully and gave me an opportunity at a redo um, rather than just saying, saying, you're minimizing your criminal conduct. I find you don't accept responsibility. I'm sentencing you to 100 days in prison or something like that. That, that would have been a very bad result for General Flynn. So as we talked about, Patty, uh, Judge Sullivan had some views regarding whether or not Michael Flynn may have committed treason. And the prosecutor didn't know what to say about that. Uh, with good reason, it is not something that comes up uh, much when you were a federal prosecutor. It's like, did, did the defendant commit treason? I mean, I, I have to tell you, I never considered the question of what treason was until I started doing this legal analysis stuff and I get questions from people sure. about whether... Did Trump commit treason? Pence commit treason? Kushner commit treason? Everyone's asking me all the time who committed treason. Do you think the judge mentioned it to scare them? I mean, what, it, it's it's fairly dramatic, and as you've uh, said on your Twitter feed, it's there's a very narrow definition of treason in the Constitution. I think the judge had not actually looked at that question before. Uh-huh. Most lawyers don't spend a lot of time thinking about treason. And really? Yeah, exactly. So you up late right. at night, just what's well, treasonous? I- exactly right, and you know it, it's not a something obviously that's that's charged much, and I think the judge was sort of speaking in a, um, in the way that he ordinarily would in a case. So one thing that we talked about a little earlier is the way in which the judge, uh, w- you know, the judges speak loosely in their language at times, and I think that's what happened here, and. You know, he hadn't looked at this issue. It's an issue that most lawyers don't know anything about. And that's why I'm bringing in uh, a law professor who's a leading expert on treason to talk about this. 
And one thing you may or may not have noticed if you've been listening to the podcast for the while, for a while is this is, uh, you know, I think the first time we've had a professor, Asha uh, is, is teaches uh, as a, sort of a national security role at Yale. But, you know, she's a former FBI agent, so she's had experience doing investigations. But I haven't had a really law professor on before. And the reason why I haven't done that is because typically what most of you seem to be interested in is actually how things will play out in an investigation or in a courtroom. And it may or may not surprise you to learn that law professors don't do those things. They teach in classrooms. They rarely represent clients. They rarely you know, have to prove anything in front of a judge or a jury. So they're not really equipped to answer those questions. Uh, and so we focus a lot on how things will actually play out in a courtroom or mm -hmm. play out in an investigation. But one thing that law professors can do, and so when, you, when you're reading or listening on television or reading on Twitter or in, in media, and you hear somebody kind of giving opinions about things, what I would say is what law professors really are helpful on are sort of the trickier areas of the law, helping people understand areas of the law that aren't uh, the subject of courtroom battles on a daily basis. Sure, the minutia. Yeah, and, and sometimes very important minutia. I mean, you know, for example, you know, the question, some of these constitutional questions, can can a president pardon himself? I mean, I that never occurred to me uh, right. until... Uh, until uh, it shouldn't Trump. have to ever occur to you. It shouldn't <laughs> have to occur to any American about right. whether or not the president can pardon himself. Correct, but, but there are certainly law Here professors who have interesting ideas on that topic, and, and that's why I'm bringing in Professor Carlton Larson, uh, Professor Larson uh, w uh, went to Yale Law School with me, uh, but now he is a professor of law at the University of California Davis School of Law, and he is one of the nation's leading authorities on the law of treason. He's the author of the book, The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution, uh, and he has given many interviews and, and talks about the subject of treason. Welcome to the show, uh, Professor Larson. Thank you for joining us. Well, hello. Happy to be here. So I, I got to tell you, I, um, ha, I, you know, we obviously we we knew each other in law school, but I have not, uh, I had not read any of your work or or had been following your career uh, until I started appearing on these uh, cable news programs and getting questions on Twitter. And, and because I started getting questions left and right uh, on television, radio, uh, in, and from from uh, folks on Twitter, you know, did Trump commit treason? Did Pence commit treason? Did Kushner commit treason? Did Trump Jr. commit treason? Everyone wants to know if somebody committed treason. And I was fortunate enough to read some of your work uh, before I answered those questions, which is I always like to read up before I answer anything I don't know. And I got to tell you, I have never considered uh, what treason was uh, until I got asked those questions. And I'm really glad I read your work because you really know your stuff. And I think it's helpful for everyone to understand exactly what the Constitution defines treason as. Uh, I was, uh, after the Michael Flynn sentencing recently, I had been tweeting that the Constitution defines uh, treason very narrowly. And that appeared to surprise many of the f people who follow me. So, um, welcome and thank you for for um, you know coming on to share your knowledge. Oh, yeah, happy to do so. Uh, yeah, I used to, you know, and I never got calls about treason either until Donald Trump became president. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, was, I was toiling away silently on this work, and it had attracted no attention whatsoever. Um, 
and now it's now now people care. It's well, kismet. There you go. It's, it's funny because yeah, all these there's all these professors writing on these random topics that no one no one no one is paying attention to. You you have chosen the right topic. I think historians and lawyers need capes. Maybe these are the superheroes of this whole scenario. There you go. Well, you yeah. I mean, although your your superhero name would probably be like Professor Treason, and <laughs> oh, no. I don't know if Carter Page already has uh, locked that one up. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, let's uh, let's um, let's get to the definition of treason in the Constitution. How does the Constitution define treason? Sure. So I mean, a lot of people just use treason in a very colloquial sense to mean. You know, disloyalty to a country, and every nation around the world has a, a treason law of some sort. Um, but what's unique about the United States is it's actually defined directly uh, in our Constitution, in Article 3, the article dealing with the judiciary. Uh, and it says, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. So essentially, to be convicted of treason, you have to fit uh, within that definition. And other behavior, no matter how disloyal, um, if it doesn't fit, just isn't going to be treason because the Constitution doesn't permit it. Yeah, it's it's you know as I think I said on Twitter when people were asking me about uh, General Flynn is you know he committed behavior that many people might talk about as treasonous, but wouldn't fit that the you know it, 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 at times the the it certainly would not fit the constitutional definition of treason. And even for example, you know we had talked uh, I had talked on a prior podcast about Maria Butina, the Russian spy essentially. You know her paramour uh, was a Russian who was aiding her in her in her or as an American, excuse me, was aiding her in her efforts. Even he would not be guilty of treason because we are not at war with the Russian Federation, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. If for treason from adhering to enemies, um, we have to be in a state of open war uh, you know, with a foreign nation or with a foreign group. So, at the moment, our only enemies, I think, really are uh, Al Qaeda. Uh, and ISIS. Yeah, maybe North Korea. I think we technically did not make peace with them, although open war, I yeah, guess, would possi- be possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. possibly North Korea, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. So let, let's just break down exactly what that means. So obviously, let's say in World War II, if you're helping the Nazis, you're you're in trouble because we were, you know, there was declarations of war and we were shooting at them and so forth. Um, but what about an undeclared war? For instance, you know, uh, you know, w- right now we have soldiers in Yemen. Uh, until recently, we had sol- we had uh, troops in Syria. I guess they're on their way out. You know, what about what about a situation like that? Would that be enough under the Constitution? Uh, yeah, I think it's enough um, as long as it's sort of uh, you know open, uh, so that everybody knows the United States is engaged in military conflict uh, with a particular group. Uh, there's no requir- formal requirement that war has to be declared um, for a group to count as an enemy. And so what what about these non-governmental bodies like ISIS? Uh, you know, what what about that? If let's say you're helping ISIS out, does that does that count? I think that counts as well. There's um uh the the, the law on this is admittedly drawn from sort of bits and pieces from um a lot of it from English law and there's not a whole lot of American law uh, directly on point, but the the British authorities said that you know essentially a foreign prince acting without the commission of his sovereign uh, attacking uh, Britain was an enemy. Uh, and so essentially you can say that foreigners, uh, if banded together and engaging in military operations against the United States, are enemies, uh, even if they don't have the sanction of a particular government. Uh, you know, I'm curious, can you explain to us how, the, why and how, do you, do you know why and how this provision uh, got found its way into the Constitution? 
Uh, well, well, part of it was prior to the revolution, there had been uh, threats to try American resistance leaders for treason uh, in England. And a lot of the, the revolutionaries were very upset about that because they thought that was an improper reading uh, of treason law, and they were simply protesting against what they viewed as an unjust government. Uh, and so part of this was to make sure that um, when the U.S. government got up and running, um, the treason wouldn't be used as a political weapon uh, to essentially say that political adversaries are enemies of the state or something like that. Uh, and so that it would be used only in the most uh, egregious circumstances. Uh, and to some extent, this goes back even into English law. There was a famous English statute of treasons from 1351, which also limited uh, the crime of treason. Uh, and so our Constitution draws almost verbatim from that English statute, but it only uses parts of that statute. I have a question from uh, one of the listeners uh, on Twitter, Twitter who asks, uh, while we understand that there is a narrow definition of treason in the Constitution, is there any legal language about working in the interests of another country to undermine your own? No, there's nothing in the Constitution specifically <clears throat> about that, other than I think you know, the president's oath that he take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Um, clearly, I think you know to be faithful to your oath, you can't place the interests of the United States uh, above those of another country. Uh, but those are um, ultimately political questions, I think, left to impeachment and to elections. Uh, there's no formal crime uh, of just disloyalty to the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's an important point. So, for example, the take what they call the take care clause that that Professor Larson's referring to, you know, it's not in a criminal statute somewhere. Okay. And um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, just so we're clear, we, when we I talked a moment ago about Putina and her uh, paramour, you know, he she has been charged and and pled guilty. He he apparently will be charged. But they were charged of a, a, a crime, essentially operating as uh, secretly operating as a foreign agent within the United States. That's not treason. Um, it's what probably most people uh, listening to this podcast think of as treason. If you're secretly operating as a Russian agent, but uh, it's it's importantly uh, for purposes of the Constitution, not treason. And I'm curious, uh, Professor Larson. You know, you obviously, I, I assume, we've been following. You probably got some phone calls from journalists about this uh, General Flynn uh, hearing. It, t- it was supposed to be a sentencing hearing. It turned out not to be where the judge was using, I would say, imprecise language about treason, suggesting that perhaps treason had been committed here when you, you, I, and everyone listening now knows that that's not the case. Um, you know, do you, are you concerned about the imprecise discussion of, of the term of treason? Um, to some extent. I mean, it, partly it's inevitable. I think it's, it's just it's the go-to term you know, that people are going to use for what they view as serious disloyalty. Uh, to the United States, and so um, when people use it in a in a sort of just a colloquial sense, um, I think that's okay. Um, when people start to use it um, to mean that there actually was a real crime committed, uh, and when you see that statement coming from people who supposedly know the law pretty well, such as federal judges, uh, then that's a lot more concerning um, because I do think it, it matters that we get this right, and there's there's always this urge to make everything treason, particularly if it's against political enemies. Uh, but the reality is there are a lot of laws out there that govern disloyalty. This is only one of them. Uh, and indeed, it's probably not even really the major one uh, in terms of protecting the United States. You know, laws against espionage and other things do a lot more of the work uh, in terms of regulating uh, disloyalty. Yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, for me, as a, as, a, as a lawyer who's practiced on both sides, as a 
you know, when I was a federal prosecutor and now on the other side, you know, obviously we want judges only sentencing people based on uh, sort of an appropriate understanding of the law and what the person did. So I do think that's important. And I hope now uh, that everyone listening to this uh, can understand exactly uh, why and how mm -hmm. I uh, am explaining to them that there, that, that uh, treason has not been committed uh, in any of the circumstances that we've been discussing recently. Yep, asked and answered. There we go. Well, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us, Professor Larson. I really appreciate it. Sure, happy to Thank be here. You. That was great. Thanks. Thank you. So let's bring in Matthew Miller. Matt was the spokesperson for the Department of Justice during the Obama administration. He's also an MSNBC contributor. Uh, you can see him on a lot of MSNBC programs, uh, but I see him most often on The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell, where he's a very, very frequent contributor. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, Matt. Thanks for having me back, Renato. So the reason I thought it would be really good to have you on this topic uh, is it seemed to me that the, the, we kind of had two related pieces of news that came out recently that very much some of the details got lost in the shuffle. And you did, I thought, a really nice job uh, publicly walking through some of the nuances and some of the details uh, in, in sh kind of helping the public see some of the problems with uh, both of these announcements. So uh, I thought maybe we could start by talking about um, uh, Mr. Whitaker, the, the acting attorney general. He made a decision not to recuse. And that decision was, first of all, done in kind of, I think, a bizarre way. Um, and it was uh, kind of eked out over a period of time. There's different versions of the story of how that, that decision came about. So let's just as a starting point, can you explain to us, you know, wh why is it that Justice Department officials sometimes recuse themselves from investigations? So there are really two uh, different types of, of reasons that they might recuse themselves. One are mandatory recusals, and those will come when the department rules make it clear that you have to recuse yourself because you either have some financial interest in the matter, let's say, if you were, you know, if it was an investigation into AT&T and you owned a lot of AT&T stock, not through a mutual fund, but just outright holding of stock, you would have to recuse yourself. Or if you had come from a law firm that was representing a party in that case, and you had come from a law firm, I think it was in the previous two years, um, you would have to recuse your case. Or if you had worked for someone in the last two years who was now under investigation, you would have to recuse. So it's, if you have some kind of personal conflict of interest, that, that is a, a hard, bright line recusal. That's the kind of recusal that Jeff Sessions came up against. There's a, he had a hard, bright line recusal because he had had a position on the campaign, the, the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign was under investigation. It was not discretionary for him. He had to recuse. That's the first set. And then the second set of recusals are places where they are closer calls, where there's no, you have no, you know, you have no direct connection to the organization or individual or entity that is under investigation. But there's something in your past, something you have said, something you have done that would cause the public to question your impartiality. And because of that question, it's in the interest of the department, the Department of Justice, that you recuse yourself so no one thinks the investigation is unfair. And that's the type of, of, of um, case that Matt Whitaker ran up against uh, with, with, with respect to the investigation into uh, uh, the, you know, the Trump campaign and the White House and, and Russian interference in the election. So, uh, 
you know, Mr. Whitaker said publicly, Attorney, uh, Acting Attorney General Whitaker said publicly that he was going to seek the advice of career ethics staff at the Justice Department. It appears that he did that. But it was kind of interesting the way and ma the manner in which that um, that uh, advice was given to him. Uh, can you explain that to us? Absolutely. So it's interesting. If you go back and look at the public statement he put out, you know, a month or two ago, he did say he was going to consult with the career ethics officials. Um, but it's quite notable. It's especially notable in retrospect that he never said he would follow their advice. Now, I think people assumed that he would follow their advice because that's what everyone at the Department of Justice does in these circumstances. But he didn't commit to it. And so and I think yesterday we found out why. So it seems what he did, um, he went and had a series of meetings with the career ethics staff at the department and, and laid out all of the things he had said publicly about the Russian investigation. If you remember, you know, he was, a, he was on CNN all the time, uh, attacking it, um, talking about defunding Mueller. He had written op-eds about it. Um, and then there are even reports that he sat in the White in the, in the Oval Office when the president would attack it in front of Jeff Sessions, and he would kind of, I think as the Washington Post reported, sort of nod along. Uh, to the president's attacks. So in, after a series of meetings, um, the ethics people came back and told him, kind of, you know, along the lines I laid out, you know, about recusals generally, generally, you don't have a hard, bright line recusal requirement. You know, you didn't work for the Trump campaign. You didn't work for the Trump organization. So there's no bright line recusal. However, if you asked us for our opinion, and it's notable, he did not ask for a formal opinion, but if you asked us for our opinion, we would recommend that you recuse because there's an appearance of conflict of interest that a reasonable person would think you can't manage this investigation with, with integrity. And he rejected that investigation, that recommendation. And what he did instead was set up a, a sort of secret committee of political appointees. I think it's four people the New York Times said, and I say secret because reporters asked who these people were, and the Justice Department won't say who they were, and had this secret committee of political appointees make a recommendation to him. And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, he recommended that he not recuse himself in complete contradiction with what the ethics officials who are charged with making these decisions had said. So, and one thing I just want to draw a distinction in case it's not clear to the listeners, you know, you, you and I both talked about career ethics staff, that means that those are people that work. Um, that's just their job, and they are hired um, in one administration, and they may serve for many administrations. They might work there for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, they're non-political appointees, whereas those, those officials that you mentioned at the end that he brought in, who he, he asked, essentially he went for a second opinion from, were political appointees. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that, that is exactly right. And, you know, Renato, most people probably will but the office you worked in, I think there was probably one political point, the U.S. you know, the U.S. attorney, him or herself. Um, in, at Maine Justice, there are a lot of political appointees. It's still vast majority of people there are career employees, but, you know, there are a lot of political appointees that come and go as, as administrations change. And the, the idea behind the ethics process is you want career people who don't, aren't beholden to any political party, you know, can't be fired for, 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 for no reason, which political appointees can have the protections of, of civil service, who will make these recommendations based just on the facts and nothing else. And, you know, I think it's pretty disturbing. And, and, and it makes it pretty obvious what's going on, that 
Whitaker circumvented those people and asked, you know, political appointees for a different recommendation. Uh, one of our listeners asks, Matt, about uh, whether or not when the individual elects not to recuse, is there any recourse either from like the ethics office or Congress? Is there anything else to be done in the situation? Uh, you know, not when it's the attorney general, not really. Um, anyone else, you could, you know, you could take it up with their supervisor. Uh, like if, if I, when I was the head of the Office of Public Affairs, had gotten a recommendation to recuse and had said no, um, I suspect the ethics officials would have let the deputy attorney general know that. And the deputy attorney general would have said, what, what are you crazy? What do you think? No, you have to refuse yourself. <laughs> this is not how it works. Um, but the attorney general doesn't have a boss other than the president. And there's no one that you can go to if the attorney general ignores the recommendation. And I, what kind of has happened here is, you know, the political process to some extent has broken down. Like any previous attorney general wouldn't have rejected this recommendation because the political cost that you would pay for doing so would be too high. You'd get beaten up in the press. The Hill would call you up to testify. You know, it could potentially ruin your career down the road. And some of those political you know, checks have broken down. So you see someone like Whitaker who thinks he can just flagrantly ignore um, uh, the ethics rules because functionally there's nothing, so, nothing that, that can be done. And politically he feels a little bit immune. Yeah, I, I have to say that, you know, it's important to put Whitaker's decision in the context of Trump's treatment of Jeff Sessions. You know, by all accounts, Jeff Sessions was a staunch ally of Donald Trump's. He was the first elected official, I believe, or certainly the first senator to come out to endorse uh, Trump. He was a big supporter of his throughout the election. He played a role, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the campaign, I think famously uh, doing some foreign policy work for the campaign. And I think that may have ultimately came back to bite him uh, later. But it, certainly he, he did what he could to help Trump. And he actually carried forth Trump's policies pretty faithfully as attorney general. But Trump got mad at him and ultimately fired him and, and the, the, his severe anger and really uh, rude and uh, disrespectful treatment of Sessions, both publicly and privately, was due to the fact that Sessions recused himself because Trump felt that he needed an attorney general to protect himself. At least that's according to very detailed reporting by The New York Times, Washington Post, and others. And so I think that it's important to understand Whitaker's um, decision in context. In other words, uh, I think Matt is absolutely right that typically uh, anybody who, and certainly, I, you know, even in, my, you know, when I was a federal prosecutor, there were times where I had to deal with recusal issues. Um, and, you know, you always followed the recommendation of career ethics staff because th that's not your full-time job is making those, those sort of calls. And people in those, in those roles uh, are very familiar with the standards and they're very familiar with the precedents that have already been set in the department and so on. Um, so to me, there must uh, I, my thought is there must have been Whitaker must have felt immense amount of pressure not to recuse uh, in order just to keep his job. I think that's exactly right. Look, I um I never really gave Sessions any credit for recusing himself. I heard a lot of people say, well, it was brave of him. He knew the president would be angry, but he did it anyway. You know, you don't get any credit for following the rules. I mean, you're supposed <laughs> to follow the rules. It's like that. It's like that old Chris Rock skit about you know you don't get any credit for taking care of your kids. You're supposed to take care of your kids. Well, you're supposed to follow the rules. But I guess maybe we should have given him a little credit because now we have an attorney general who doesn't even follow the basic rules that everyone else is supposed to follow. I mean, it is a, it is an extremely low bar to clear that 
we're supposed to give an attorney general credit just for doing what they're supposed to do, let alone going above and beyond. But that seems to be where we are. And I think what it gets at, Renato, is how transparently corrupt the president is and how transparently corrupt his relationship with the Justice Department is. Because otherwise, why would you care whether the attorney general recuses himself or not? You want someone there you know, in, in, in the, the perked world who's just going to make a decision based on the facts and the law. You only care if they recuse themselves or not if you want someone there who's going to protect you and watch out for you and do something corrupt to steer probe away from you. And the fact that the president has felt free to thunder on for a year and a half now about how Sessions betrayed him by following the law is just such an open public act of corruption that we've kind of gotten used to, I'm afraid. I agree with you. And I have to say, if if there's one thing, and there, there's been a lot over the last couple of years that I've been really disappointed in, uh, just in this country and where we're at in general. But when, you know, Donald Trump has been going publicly and, you know, I, the, the, one, the instance that stands out to me, it got me, it stuck in my cross so much. I wrote an op-ed at, uh, for the New York Times, stayed up late writing it because I was so upset when Trump tweeted out attacking Sessions for uh, permitting two Republican congressmen to be indicted. And he said, we're essentially, we're going to lose these seats now because you let these, uh, the Justice Department indict these two men who there's substantial evidence committed serious federal crimes. Uh, that's just downright corrupt. I mean, there's no, there's no other way to spin that. And yet that was like a, what, a six-hour news story? I mean, that was, that was like not even a, a, you know, a full news cycle. It's a I drop mean, in the bucket. It was a drop in yeah, the bucket. Yeah, it was. It, you know, it was a low point at the time, and the one thing I think we had going for us at the time is it had no impact on the department. You know, the department didn't really care that Trump was, was tweeting about that and basically asking the department to do corrupt things. That's now changed. We now have an, an acting attorney general who isn't immune from that pressure and doesn't resist it. And because the president wants him to, to you know, be openly, brazenly corrupt and violate the, the, the ethics recommendations and not follow them, it's just basically going to do that. One thing that I uh, that I was surprised about with the news, and I think people may not have completely keyed in on, is that it appears that Whitaker, until now, has not been briefed on what uh, Mueller's been doing, was not part of the decision-making process. And so now, for the first time, you know, w- w- we, we have to wonder what effect Whitaker will have. In other words, I think people had stopped talking about Whitaker because they figured, well, things seem to be going okay. Nothing's awry. No one's upset. You know, we don't hear any kind of grousing or leaks or problems. So must be humming along. Things seem to be happening. But now we don't really know uh, what effect Whitaker will have. And it may be the next time Mueller tries to do something, you know, one of the big decisions coming up would be subpoenaing the president. Do do you try to subpoena the president of the United States? Kenneth Starr did so. Whitaker could uh, could overrule a decision by Mueller to do just that. Yeah, he absolutely could. And I think they made clear yesterday that he's now – um, going to be fully briefed on the probe. I think it sounds like he's going to leave the day-to-day management to, to Rosenstein, but still any big decisions will come through uh, Rod up to him for approval. And I think people ought to be worried. Look, I've, ne- I've never thought that Whitaker, you know, would come in and just fire Mueller, you know, from being at the department, really how hard it is to, to you know, just do something blatantly inappropriate like that because ever you know there's a culture inside the department of following the rules and following the facts and you know if Mueller comes up and recommends something there's going to be a good legal basis for it and it'd be just hard to you know just fire him and shut the investigation down i think that's a bridge too far 
But there are a lot of closer calls. And subpoenaing the president is, you know, a, a bit of a closer call. I think there are, you know, arguments why you wouldn't do that. Um, releasing a report publicly is a is a bit of a closer call. I can see the argument. Well, look, public reports are not what the Justice Department does. We either bring charges or we don't. And so I think it's those calls around the around the edges where you can make a, a I think you lawyers would say a colorable argument on the other side um, that I think we ought to be worried that Whitaker is you know not going to do the right thing. Will Whitaker also have uh, access to the information for the uh, SDNY and EDNY investigations? Yeah, he will. He has the attorney general can have access to whatever he wants. Now, I think it would be, you know, it would be unusual for an AG to be directly, you know, kind of meddling in each investigation. Um, that said, um, you know, when I worked for Attorney General Holder, he did expect to be briefed on big major investigations. And this is clearly one of them. This is a you know one of the both 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 um, the you know all all of these investigations related to the president are some of the most important things the department is doing. I'm sure he'll ask to ask to be briefed on them. But if I were him, boy, would I be careful um, because talk about blowing your career up. And um, you know he's he's not a, he's not an old man. I think he's you know late 40s or so. Um, he's got a long time in ahead of him. You want to find yourself on the end of, you know, some some ugly inspector general report hauled up to the hill and having to explain yourself, you know, for for inappropriate action. What is not probably going to be a long tenure as attorney general, um, you, you ought to be pretty careful in interfering with those probes. I would think doesn't mean you won't do it, right. but you should be really careful. You know, it's an interesting point you make, Matt, and it echoes points that Asha Rangappa had made on a prior. Uh, episode of the podcast. Her and I were debating back and forth. I think she felt because of his, of uh, Whitaker's age and his future, he uh, wouldn't take drastic action. Um, I I dubbed her a Whitaker optimist. I am more of a Whitaker pessimist <laughs> uh, as this as things go. I I am too. And I, by the way, I will say the the argument against that is, you know, Matt Whitaker is, does not has not followed has not followed the career track where. You know, he maybe wants to leave and go join a big white shoe law firm so he can't do anything disqualifying. I mean, last time he was a U.S. attorney, and that's really a career track to a pretty good job afterwards. He went and worked for a basically scam company that was ripping people off. Mm-hmm. So he may not want to follow that future where it matters if you've been ethically dinged up. And I would add, there's this whole, you know, MAGA land world that exists now where you could go do something corrupt and he'll walk away and get a Fox contract and be all the better for it. So the incentives aren't completely lined up the way they used to be. Yeah, that latter point is, I think, kind of where I come down on it is I think that nowadays, I mean, you can be someone, for example, and who, you know, General Flynn, who we've otherwise spoken about on the podcast today, you know, who is a criminal and has done things that are, as <laughs> the federal judge noted, Judge Sullivan, had done things that were just awful uh, and nonetheless is celebrated as a hero. And, and I'm sure he'll get whatever, a contract or, you know, book deals or whatever he gets after this. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to focus on was there were these these two different types of recusal. We talked about, you talked a little bit about them. And, you know, the the standard for the second part is, that you know, if a reasonable person is you know likely to believe that you that you couldn't be impartial in overseeing something, and I, I think there's multiple reasons why the department cares about uh, having people making decisions that that appear to be impartial. One is just when there's a litigation, if you if an indictment comes out, 
then, uh, you know, in somebody's, you know, let's say you have somebody like me defending them. I would certainly use the fact that uh, Whitaker hadn't recused himself or other, you know, if he, if I thought he wasn't favorable to me. And certainly, um, you know, that that's the case, I think, whenever there's a, a, a non-recusal where there might be an appearance of unfairness. But I think the other reason, and I think an important, the more important one here, the one that I think matters more here, is that um, you want the public to trust that your decisions are impartial and fair. And I have to say, what, what really, what I find bizarre here is not just that Whitaker made, I think, the poor judgment decision um, not to uh, recuse himself, but I even am surprised that the ethics folks saw this as a close call, given that there is intense public debate about whether or not Matt Whitaker can be fair. Uh, that, you know, to me, you that, that strikes me as uh, a good reason to believe that most reasonable people would at least question whether or not he could be impartial. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that close a call. And I can see the ethics of the officials. I can see why, you know, you're talking to the, the attorney general who might want to shade it a little bit that way. Um, but I don't think it's that close a call. And in the end, he did recommend um, that he recuse. And I will say, you know, there was something interesting about the department's rollout yesterday where, you know, in the morning they were telling reporters that he had been cleared by ethics to, to work on this. And then that turned out not to be true. And they had to scramble and do this conference call. And in the conference call, the reason they stated that he didn't, you know, if it was a close call, the reason he didn't want to recuse is no attorney general had ever recused because of an appearance problem before. And he didn't want to set a binding precedent for future attorney attorneys general. And I saw that and I thought, well, that's strange. I remember the attorney general, Eric Holder, I worked for recusing himself the Edwards investigation just for appearance issues, uh, for nothing else. And then someone pointed out to me, and I think I tweeted it, that um, John Ashcroft had recused from the Valerie Plame investigation, and the then deputy attorney general, Jim Comey, had held a press conference saying he's not doing it for any actual conflict. He's doing it because of an appearance issue, and he wants the public to have confidence in the integrity of the department. And that's what responsible attorneys general do. And you then saw them in the letter they put out, they backed down from that and made a slightly different argument. I heard they were scrambling to rewrite the letter during the day because the arguments they were making were sort of falling apart in real time in the public. Um, and when that's happening, it shows that you've um, reverse engineered a policy to come up with the outcome you want, not actually followed a legitimate process to come to the right outcome. Yeah, I, I will tell you, Matt, I was on CNN. Uh, it, this was Friday, mor uh, Friday morning, late morning, 1030 or 1040. And Pamela Brown was asking me about this and what that what this decision, this news meant. And at the time, the reporting was that the ethics staff had cleared him. And I told her uh, there had to be more to the story. I just I was mm -hmm. thinking to myself on the air. I'm like, there's just no way that the ethics folks did not see an appearance issue here. I just I can't yeah. believe it. There had to be something else to drop. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned one of the, you know, there, he wrote this, there was this like letter that came out from the assistant attorney general, I think it was, uh, later in the day, uh, setting forth the reasons why he decided, or the stated reasons, I'll say, for why he did not uh, recuse himself. And there was, I think, six or seven of them. You touched on one of them. What did, what did you make of that of that as a whole, just the, the various reasons that they gave? I, you know, I, that, I found the entire letter so unconvincing, and it was... You know, there was one sentence in that letter that was important, and that was the career ethics officials recommended he refuse. <laughs> Everything else from that was complete spin. I mean, this idea that 
the, the argument they had made publicly that they didn't want to bind future attorney generals by this precedent of appearance. Well, one thing that that that's not how it works. You don't the, what you do doesn't bind future attorneys general. People make different decisions all the time. Two, the argument they gave publicly about the appearance issue turned out not to be the case because other AGs had recused themselves. And so the argument they made in the letter was no, no one had ever recused um, because of a public, a prior public position before, and they didn't want to set that precedent, which is just such a narrow read to rest your argument on. It's like if, if in the Edwards case, Holder had said, well, no AG has ever recused before because he's overseeing a vice presidential you know, vetting process in which someone was involved. That, it's a, that, that is a very narrow argument. The question is about the big argument, the appearance. And so it looked to me like they just came up with the, you know, kind of the best arguments they could. They tried to bury the real news in, you know, a bunch of, kind of you know, legalistic sound, legalistic arguments that didn't do anything to get to get around the main problem. And I think you saw in the reporting of that letter that all of the reporters that have covered the department for a long time and know how it works saw completely through it and what was really going on. Mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah, I agree. I, I agree 100% with that. I, um, I kind of had the same, I had the same reaction as you and, and I'm, you know, I'm curious, you know, the, to sort of talk about the other news, you know, ordinarily, uh, I, you know, if, if, if this was, if that was our topic and that's all we were talking about today in the podcast, it would be a lot. It would be but a still, lot. There's so much more. Yeah. And, and the, the hope would be at the end is that we would tell people, don't worry, Trump has nominated somebody else who's going to be a permanent <laughs> Senate confirmed attorney general who's actually been the attorney general before. Now, albeit a long time ago, but still he's been the attorney general before. And so you have nothing to worry about because we got this. There's cavalry coming over the hill. Let's just uh, call your senators and tell them to confirm this guy as fast as possible. But then we had also oddly timed news, and we'll get to that in a second, of uh, Mr. Barr, the attorney general uh, nominee or soon to be not uh, technically not the nominee yet, but soon to be the nominee. Um, he wrote a, a 19 page single spaced memo. Uh, on his own, just decided one day that he wanted well, to take a lot longer than one day to write, but he decided he wanted to do this. Uh, and he sent it uh, both to um, the uh, to Rod Rosenstein. He also sent it to the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, who are the people who d- determine a lot of the tricky legal questions at the Justice Department, like whether or not a sitting president can be indicted and so forth. And he also sent it, and this was a catch that, that, that you noted uh, publicly, Matt, uh, to Trump's legal team at the White House as well, which I thought was very interesting. And this was released, or at least the news of this broke, I think about it was like 10 o'clock or 9 or 10 o'clock at night uh, on a Thursday night before the holiday. And I I literally was getting, I got a call from a a reporter or a a producer at CNN literally late in the evening that something was about to break on this. It was odd timing, and I'm curious what you know. You talked a little bit, but maybe you could explain to our listeners what you saw in that. Well, so um, I worked on a confirmation team for an attorney general. I worked on Holder's confirmation team in uh, you know November, December of 2008 uh, during the presidential transition. And when you wanted something that you wanted to bury, going into a holiday weekend is the time to do it. And um, I think they, they, what they did, they, it was clear they had to give this memo. They had to turn this memo over to the Senate as part of the questionnaire that uh, an attorney, an AG nominee has to, to fill out. And they were sending that questionnaire in yesterday. They leaked it out. 
um, with the best spin possible and with some really laughable spin. One of the things that, that they, they told the original reporter is, oh, it's really quite common for um, you know, former officials and other kind of legal luminaries to weigh in on big matters like this before the department. And I, I saw that and I thought, boy, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't remember that happening. And so I checked with Holder and some of the other former, you know, really senior people I worked with, if they could never remember getting long memos like that. <laughs> just laughed, like, no, of course not. No, that never happens. People don't just send you 19-page unsolicited memos unless they, you know, if they're part of a policy organization or something that's advocating or something. But otherwise, it just doesn't happen. So I, I think there were, you know, two issues with the memo. One is the content. And it's a, you know, a legal position that is very aggressive. Uh, I think you could say it's extreme that, you know, the president can interfere with the investigation in any way that, you know, it, but as long as he's using one of his constitutional powers, say to fire officials or to pardon people, it can't be obstruction of justice, can't be a criminal act. So he could pardon a witness to keep from talking, and that's not a criminal act. I think that's disturbing, but there are legal scholars that hold that position. And then the second thing I think the issue, and this is the issue I have the most concern about, is that he shared the memo with the White House uh, back in the summer. And to me, that tells me two things. One, that memo was a job application, and it worked. And, and it worked because the president, you know, say it this way, it's not a coincidence that both in choosing acting attorney general and bypassing the regular line of succession to choose an acting attorney general, Matt Whitaker, and choosing an attorney general nominee, he managed to find two of the only lawyers in the country with a, with a, in one case, publicly stated hostility, and in another case, privately stated hostility to the Mueller investigation. That's not a coincidence to me, and it's not very hard to figure out what the White House is trying to accomplish here. I, I could not agree more. Um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Matt Whitaker, just for background, I think m most of our listeners know if you've been listening to the podcast a while, for a while, he was a CNN anal a legal analyst just like I am now. So there's tons of TV clips of him going out there and blasting Mueller uh, on uh, on TV. I mean, when they have the both sides, he's the other side uh, attacking Mueller on a, or was for on a regular basis. So, um, yeah, I mean, it seems to me like the number one and only probably job application, uh, job uh, description that that uh, Trump is looking for in an attorney general, is somebody who is going to do whatever he can to uh, obstruct and impede the Mueller investigation, which Barr is 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 uh, also informed him is not illegal. So this right. way <laughs> he's he's hiring Barr, Barr to essentially do uh, what Barr is himself saying is not unlawful. Um, you know, I will say I had a little bit of, of a different take on it, not not anything inconsistent with you, but just coming at it from a different perspective. I mean, I will say as somebody now who is a practicing lawyer, you know, I you know that one thing that folks at, at, that are listening may not realize is, you know, when I, you know, tweet out a Twitter thread to you, I mean, I bang that out in 20 minutes, 30 minutes on the fly. I don't think about it in advance. Uh, I try to be thoughtful. It's, it's me, basically me telling you my thoughts off the top of my head. But that that memo was 19 pages, single spaced. Oh. It took me a lot longer to write. And it had the legal citations, and as as Matt was saying, I think a kind of a uh, an argument that I don't agree with. I think most people, the vast majority of, of, of lawyers, don't. But it was nuanced, and at times it was it was well um, well argued at times. Um, and it, it struck me as something that would take a lot of time to do. And certainly, if one of my clients asked for something like that, I want a 19-page single-space memo. 
and I want you to send it to the deputy attorney general and to the White House, and it might get out to the press. Uh, that, would, that could take just dozens of hours. I mean, it could take over 100 hours. It would take a lot of time to put together in a, in a, in a serious way. So this guy felt really, really, really strongly about these issues or and or, as you pointed out, Matt, he really wanted that job very badly, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. The other thing I would say is in the making the arguments, I really felt at times he was unfair in the way that he made the arguments. You know, a good lawyer deals with counter arguments. He did not at any point that I could see or in any serious way during the memo. He failed to discuss the obvious serious counterweight to a lot of the arguments, which is the possibility that a president would be above the law um, and you know could potentially um, commit crimes and cover up those those crimes and not have there would be no way to hold him or her accountable. Um, and, and he really, at times, I think, conflate, you know, made some sort of serious errors that I think were just, you know, aren't, weren't defensible, just errors in terms of statements of the law. It struck me something like something more like an advocate would write. And I say that I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, because, you know, now that I'm not a federal prosecutor, I, I represent clients and I'm an advocate. But it, it, w it seemed like something that he was uh, it, it, if if I didn't know the circumstances, I thought that I would think this was a paid piece by a client uh, rather than, uh, 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 you know, something written by a former attorney general. Well, you know, Ronaldo, you get to one of the biggest questions I have about it, which is they 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 made clear to reporters or they claimed to reporters that the memo was unsolicited by the Justice Department. I'm sure that that's true. But I wonder if it was unsolicited by the White House. And given that he gave a copy of the memo to Emmett Flood, I'm very curious whether there was a conversation between Emmett Flood and Bill Barr uh, or someone else in the White House or you know, counsel's office or another you know, person in the kind of conservative bar, you know, the Federalist Society world here in, in Washington, asked him to write it um, unofficially on the White House's behalf and sent it to the Justice Department. And I think he's going to he's, he's have to answer that question at his confirmation hearing. Uh, I just have to ask because uh, obviously I'm not going to read the whole 19 pages single space. What? Uh, <laughs> I, just, I don't have <laughs> just don't have the time or the interest. But I'm trying to just kind of consolidate some of the questions that people have, and one of them is: Is this basically setting up a defense for Trump to use that he's acting crazy on the international stage because of Mueller, and it's impeding his ability to execute his presidential duties? So, what I would say here's how I would characterize the arguments in the memo at a very high level. And I don't think I want to get all, too much into the weeds on them. But essentially the argument, and Matt kind of touched on this earlier, is that, first of all, there, that the statute that criminalizes um, obstructive conduct, like some of the examples that Matt uh, talked about earlier, um, that it does not reach the president's conduct. In, at some points, he argues because of the text of it, and I don't, I don't think those arguments are right, and there's, a, I think, a good op-ed in the New York Times by a couple of law professors I know explaining why. And then there's also, he makes a constitutional argument that essentially he says the executive branch is the president, not uh, any of these other people, that they're just the hands of the president. There's a lot of, I would say a lot of people would disagree with that. But then he essentially says that if you uh, prevented the president from doing these activities that could be construed as obstructing an investigation if he has a certain intent that you'll hinder, you'll either prevent or hinder, um, he has two separate arguments, the, the presidency 
too much. Is that is that a fair summary, Matt? Uh, I think that's exactly right, and it reminds me of the famous Nixon quote: "When the president does it, that means that it's not illegal." Right. <laughs> it's a, you know, yep. a, 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 a shorter way to sum it up. I think that, that that's exactly right. And what I would say, um, if you've been following this stuff, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the listeners, if you know, follow me elsewhere, and they see a lot of my arguments back and forth with Dershowitz that I've had for over a year now on the subject. I would say that the, that Mr. Barr had what I would call a more refined um, and uh, more defensible version of Dershowitz's arguments. So Dershowitz and others essentially say, look, you know, if the president the president could do whatever he wants. And Barr was trying to say, well, he, he can't destroy documents. He can't, like, buy off witnesses or, like, you know, uh, you can't, like, kidnap witnesses or do something like that. But if it doesn't involve destroying evidence or testimony or something like that, then he's fine. And that leaves open— No matter, no matter, what, no, no matter whether he's doing it corruptly or not. Correct. So it's by, I mean, literally by definition, exactly, Matt. So even if he has the intent to impede the investigation, that's okay. He could just fire everyone at the Justice Department wow. working on the investigation, and that's cool. Um, you know, in doing it, you could say publicly, I'm doing this because they're working on it, investigating me. And that, I mean, if, to Mr. Barr, the only remedy there would be impeachment. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a pretty extreme view. Um, and I think, w- w- Matt, you brought up, I thought, such an interesting point a moment ago when you talked about was this done? You're, you're exactly right. I think that's such a key question. Was this done at somebody's request? And the, w- the reason I, I, I find that interesting is if it was done at someone's request that was at the White House or part of the team, then this is arguably legal work that's being done on behalf of a subject of the investigation. And that would be an I would think that would be an automatic recusal, right? Yeah, I think it would be an automatic recusal. But I would say, you know, that's probably an automatic recusal. But even if it wasn't solicited by the White House, the fact that he gave it to the White House, to me, sets up the same problem Whitaker has. He is fatally conflicted. There's a fatal appearance problem. And it's not just an appearance problem because we all know what's happening here. Like, we all know why the president picked Matt Whitaker. You know, there, before Matt Whitaker, there were five or six other cabinet secretaries, or before Sessions, there were five or six other cabinet secretaries that had resigned in, or been fired. And in every case, the deputy had stepped up. There was a reason why, uh, why the president circumvented Rosenstein and put Whitaker there. And I think it's pretty clear there's a reason why he put Barr here. And it's because he knows Barr's views. And he knew, knew Barr's views six months in advance. I think it's important. That the day the president announced uh, Barr's nomination, he said he was my first choice from day one. Well, yeah, now we know why. No kidding. <laughs> of course he was. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, you know, the the other thing that I um, that I really take away from all this just is somebody who uh, re- obs- is an observer of the legal scene uh, quite a bit is I really it changed my view of Barr. You know, Barr is a guy who had been attorney general quite some time ago. I think it was under George Herbert Walker Bush. And, I, you know, I had known him. You know, he had had a kind of a role at Kirkland and Ellis, and he represented Caterpillar when they were raided by the FBI. And I, I, you know, viewed him as more or less an institutionalist. And what I saw here was a a complete lack of judgment on the um, the part of Mr. Barr. I mean, to me, what, what, what... Barr was doing here is here's a guy who doesn't have a lot of the facts about a case. And it's one thing, you know, I, I will, I don't have all the facts of what Mueller's doing. I don't know uh, one way or the other. 
And I will present to the public like, look, here's what this means to me. And here's the context that I can give you to help you understand the news. But what this man was doing is he wrote this long screed, really attacking Mueller to the leaders in the Justice Department overseeing him. And it didn't have any sense of humility to it. I mean, there wasn't a line there. He says, I don't really have most of the facts, but the tone of the whole thing wasn't, you know, if Mueller is doing this, this might be a concern. It was really uh, attacking Mueller's judgment based on very limited information. It struck me as just poor judgment on his part. And, and, and using words like interrogation for talking about how Mueller would, you know, question the president. Mm -hmm. That he's a former attorney general. He knows it's not an interrogation. That's not how it works. There were some very <laughs> loaded terms he used throughout the memo, I thought, that, that, that really reinforced the point you just made. I agree, Matt. Uh, that, yeah, exactly, Matt. It, it almost—that's why I said it almost read like something you were you would say on behalf of a client. Like if I was going to try to convince a, a, a layperson of something on behalf of a client, it was bizarre. So, you know, Matt, I, one thing that I think is in a lot of folks' heads is they're wondering what does this mean going forward. I mean, how scared a lot of a lot of folks are really scared about what this means for the Mueller investigation for the Southern District of New York. I think the number one question that Patty and I received from folks that they wanted to ask uh, on this podcast is what 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 can we do and what does this mean? What what thoughts do you have about um, what? We, what, what concerns people should have about what Whitaker and Barr will be doing in the months to come? Yeah, so uh, the way I look at it, I think the president has tried very much to ensure that the fix is in and that he can uh, be protected uh, by one or both of these, these people in charge of the Justice Department. And I think with Whitaker, the jury is out whether he'll be able to achieve that or not. I think if it's, you know, if what Mueller finds is hardcore evidence of criminality, it'll be hard, tougher. But if it's a closer call... You know, he, he might have the six in like he wants. And then with respect and, and, and honestly, there's not much people can do about it. I mean, he's the acting attorney general. The president has the ability to put him in a position. There's no real way to dislodge him. I think the, the where people can have an impact is with the bar nomination. Um, you know, the Senate has a lot of control. He, the Senate has absolute control over whether he's confirmed or not. And they can make up the price of his confirmation a pledge to recuse himself from the Mueller investigation if he were confirmed with a pledge to recuse. And by the way, it's important he pledged to recuse, not important he pledged to consult with the ethics officials because we've seen already how you know the appointees in this administration may not care about that. Get, make him pledge to recuse, and if so, the investigation goes back to the control of Rosenstein, and I think we, have a lot, we can have a lot more faith that it's allowed to, to wrap up uh, in an appropriate way. But for that to happen, you need you know, three or four Republican senators who are willing to make that the price of their vote. And without that, you know, if they're not willing to demand that, there's no way he'll pledge it. And if, and if he's confirmed without making that pledge, I think people ought to be concerned. So call your senators, especially if you have Republican senators. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.